It is Spirit Mornings here on the Spirit Catholic Radio Network. Good morning, I'm Bruce McGregor, and welcome, and we hope you are ready for Scripture. That's right, we are Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran here in the Gospel of John. Sharon uh, serves as the Teaching Director of Seeking Truth. Currently pursuing a second master's degree in biblical studies at the Augustine Institute, and we are very blessed to have Sharon here with us on the radio every other Thursday. So a calendar check for December 2nd puts us right here. Sharon, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Bruce. Happy Advent. And to you, too. It's a beautiful, beautiful time of year. I know. I have my first candle lit. Yes, indeed. We do, too, in the McGregor household. All right. New new candles this year. Did you? Yeah, we keep burning them over the years. We need to do that. I know. They get kind (laughs) of fall over. That's right. Well, a well-used candle at Advent is a good thing. Yeah. Well, Sharon, as we continue our study of John... Uh, let's uh, go ahead and just uh, backtrack so we can overlay where we left off last week was right. uh, John the Baptist denying being the Messiah. You want mm-hmm. me to go ahead and yeah. read scripture? Yeah, why don't you start at verse 32, and my goal is to get through chapter 1 today. Wouldn't that be? That would be good. Wouldn't that be good? All right, then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Ooh, that's wow. where that's where John knows. That's where John knows that Jesus Christ is God's chosen one. And uh, all the all the gospel writers, the synoptics and John, all say something about the baptism. This one's a little bit different. Uh, this is where John the Baptist recognizes the one who the Holy Spirit comes down and stays on. And he's baptizing him there in the Jordan River. And this is a rare instance in Scripture when we get a total theophany, God the Father. Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all in one uh, view, one mm-hmm. vantage point. And so don't you wonder, like, why would Jesus, God of the universe, sinless, why is he submitting to a baptism of repentance? I've wondered that often. You know, and I, yeah. I love uh, Pope Benedict XVI's book, Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, here's what he says about baptism. Jesus loaded the burden of all mankind's guilt upon his shoulders. He bore it down into the depths of the Jordan. He inaugurated his public activity by stepping into the place of sinners. His inaugural gesture is an anticipation of the cross. He is, as it were, the true Jonah, who said to the crew of the ship, Take me and throw me into the sea. The whole significance of Jesus' baptism, the fact that he bears all righteousness, first comes to light on the cross. And the baptism is an acceptance of death for the sins of humanity. And the voice that calls out, This is my beloved Son. Over the baptismal waters, that's an anticipatory reference to the resurrection. Isn't that beautiful? He's bearing the sins of all humanity on his shoulders. He's going to go under the water. And and that was a scary thing for the Hebrews. They didn't like to go under depths of water. Um, You know, to go under the water is to die, to die to sin. And he's going to take on all the sin of humanity right there in perfect obedience to the Father's will. And then he's going to rise up out of the water. And, and that'll, you know, symbolize the resurrection that's coming. Of course, no one knew that then mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit hadn't come at, in that way for all to realize this. But John, John the Baptist gets a glimpse when he, when he sees the Spirit rest on him. And the other writer tells the heavens tear open and, and the clouds tear open, I think Mark says. And the Spirit of God 
uh, comes over him and, and the voice of the Father, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased, whom I love so much, and he submits to that perfect obedience. So, so there's the baptism, and then what happens in verse 35? All right, well, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Okay, so he's there with two of his own disciples, but he's pointing out Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God. Now, those guys, when they hear that, they're going to immediately turn and follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. They're going to leave John the Baptist. Those are his guys. That's his ministry. But he doesn't care because he knows his purpose. He knows his calling. And he is called to bear witness to the Word, the Word of God. And so he doesn't care that they leave him. He's always pointing others to Christ, always. He wants to be minimized, that Jesus Christ can be maximized. And so, you know, of course, they would have thought when he says, look, the Lamb of God, I mean, it's kind of a funny, funny uh, greeting to say to someone, but mm-hmm. uh, we talked about last time how that would have brought to their mind several lamb references from the Old Testament. Just briefly, the first time a lamb is mentioned in the Old Testament is in Genesis 22, where Isaac and uh, Abraham are going up the mountain, out, up Mount Moriah, and Isaac says, Dad, where, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Not knowing that he himself uh, was probably going to be the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then in Exodus 12, when Moses, uh, they're, they're escaping Pharaoh, and, and uh, God prescribes that first Passover lamb, that it must be blemish-free, they must consume it fully. And and uh, so we have that whole Passover lamb imagery. And then Isaiah 53 had said there would be a lamb, a suffering servant, like a sheep to the slaughter, so silently still, that there would be a lamb of God. So when John says, look, the lamb, they know. They know a lot of things come to mind, and immediately they leave John and go to Jesus. And so let's, uh, let's look at verse 37. All right. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Okay, so he hadn't even opened his mouth yet. And they say, Rabbi, and that means teacher, and where are you staying? They want to abide with him. Mm-hmm. Come, come, he said, and you will see. And so I mean, without opening his mouth, without doing any miracles, without just on John's um, word, they that look, the Lamb of God, they're willing to leave John, go to him without a word, and call him teacher, Rabbi. And they want to stay with him. And it's getting late in the day. It's four in the afternoon. Now here, John, the evangelist now, John loves abiding theology. And they just want to be with him. They want to stay with him. They want to hang out with him. And and can you imagine their conversation as they sit and talk and how provocative it must have been and what Jesus must have, what they must have talked about. And immediately uh, they're drawn to him. Uh, There's truth in him. He is truth. He is wisdom. and, and, And I'm sure they could tell that right off the bat. But this abiding theology, it reminds me of um, Martha and Mary, for Mm -hmm. instance, the difference between um, one who abides. Uh, Luke is the only gospel writer that tells us about these two. And uh, Jesus is visiting their house. And and when he comes, Martha's just in a flurry all over the kitchen. And she's got people to feed. And and Mary just sits at at Christ's feet. She Mm -hmm. just sits there. She just wants to be with him and listen to him and abide with him and be with him. And and Martha's getting upset. And and, uh, she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do all this work by myself? Tell her to go help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Uh, Or indeed, only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what's better. It will not be taken from her. So Mary's the one who chooses it 
uh, to sit at the feet and abide with Jesus. And uh, St. Augustine says of John and Peter, kind of the same thing. John is is an abider. He loves to just sit with the Lord. Even at the Last Supper, he lies uh, next to him on his chest. He puts his head on, on Christ's chest, and he just wants to be with him and abide with him. But Peter, Peter's a, a different, you know, everyone has a different personality, and Peter's a doer and a go-getter, and Peter's sticking his foot in his mouth a lot, and Peter's going to be radically challenged to learn about loyalty, and that'll come through his denial of Christ, not once, not twice, but three times he's going to have to learn radical love and uh, in the end he will learn it quite well because he'll lay down his life in martyrdom he'll be the rock that the church is built on and uh, Paul tells us that he who began a good work and you will carry it out to completion until the day of Jesus Christ so I think we're all different some of us are abiders and some of us are doers it's not right or wrong but it's just how we radically come to know the Lord absolutely In verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Well, I love I love how Andrew immediately runs and gets his brother. The minute he finds Christ, he wants to go tell someone. And often that's how it is when, when we have a conversion or when we really come to true belief. We just have to tell someone. We have to tell someone about Christ. And if you're not telling someone about Christ, something's wrong because that's our call. We're to tell, we're to tell others. So that's what Andrew does. He runs. And uh, this week we had Andrew's feast day. I mm-hmm. love Andrew. But um, another interesting thing in this passage is Jesus looks at Simon, at Peter, and he says, Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas. Now, right off the bat, he doesn't even know him, hasn't even, he's changing his name, boom, right off the bat, Cephas. And this comes really abruptly and immediately in John's gospel. And so that's a name change, and that doesn't happen happen very often in scripture and when it does you better perk up because it means something big and here he changes peter's name on day one so he has big plans for peter he has a big mission for peter he has a big call for peter and i think you know what jesus is doing there that's a real kingly duty when you name uh, for instance in genesis 1 god lets adam name all the creatures and he lets him name eve and he's putting adam as king over all creation well now there's a new king in town and his name is Jesus Christ and he's establishing a new kingdom and so he's going to name Peter Rock Peter, Cephas, Rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Matthew doesn't tell us that till chapter 16, but John's going to tell us right off the bat that Peter gets a name change. He's the only apostle that gets a name change. And so right off the bat, Jesus has made a right-hand man. And uh, in the Old Testament, we see the Elbiat, and this in Hebrew uh, was like a prime minister, and every kingdom had an Elbiat, or a right-hand man. And when the king goes away, he puts the right-hand man in charge. And, and Jesus is saying, Cephas, Peter, rock. Uh, where, where we see this is in Isaiah 22, and a lot of people don't know this. It's not pointed out a lot, and Catholics really should know this to help us understand the primacy of Peter. Um, in Isaiah 22, when the king goes away, he says to Eliakim that I will entrust him with your authority, and he will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the house of Judah. I'm going to set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens it, no one will shut it, and when he shuts it, no one will open it. Now, that's uh, that 
that is the king putting Eliakim in charge while he goes away. He's making him his Elbiat, his right-hand man. He's giving him the keys to the kingdom, the keys to the house of David. And isn't that what Jesus does in Matthew 16? Mm -hmm. And there again is where he changes. That's where Matthew has Jesus changing Peter's name. What about you, Peter? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're a Messiah, you're son of God. And, and, And Jesus says, well, flesh and blood didn't point that out to you, but my Father in heaven told you that. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. Doesn't that sound exactly like Isaiah 22? He's making him his right-hand man. And um, today, uh, in our reading at Mass, in Matthew 7, in today's reading, we're seeing Jesus is talking about a man who builds his house on a rock. And the storms come and everything, nothing can bring that house down because it's built on a rock. And isn't that what Jesus Christ did? He built his house. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. But he builds his house, the church, on the rock, Peter, Cephas. And so I think that's a great um, mm-hmm. a great explanation. And it's an office. The, 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 uh, there were 12. There had to be 12 because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And these new 12 apostles will be the restored Israel. And so this is an office. And so when Judas dies, they have to replace him and say, why couldn't they just go with 11? Well, there has to be 12. Right. And it's an office. It's not just a position. And so they, they get together in Acts 1. And they say, um, yeah, in verse 20, it says, let his homestead be made desolate. This is Judas and let no one dwell in it. Let another man take his office. So this is an office, and they cast lots. That, again, is a priestly duty. We saw Zacharias, remember, in Luke 1, casting lots when it came his turn to serve in the Holy of Holies. And uh, and so that's a very priestly duty, and they cast lots. Should it be Matthias? Uh, or should it be uh, Joseph called Bersabbas? And it went the, the lot fell to Matthias so, Matthias, so he becomes the next apostle. There had to be 12. And so uh, name changing is really big in Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament as well when Abraham, he gets Abram was his name uh, from Genesis 12 on when he's called, and he gets a name change to Abraham. But... Uh, what's funny about that one is he disobeys God, and God tells him he's going to have children as numerous as the stars, and Sarah, Sarai, and Abram don't trust God, and they take matters into their own hands, and he lies with Hagar, and uh, he's 86 years old when Ishmael is born, and then God doesn't speak to him for a very, very, very long time, 13 years for oh. his disobedience, and you can imagine him and Sarah thinking, what have we done? What have we done? We didn't trust God. We didn't obey. He's not going to talk to us anymore, and 13 later, 13 years later, he speaks to Abram, and at that time, he says, first thing he tells him is, is uh, I want to make a covenant with you, and it's going to cost you something. And, and he tells he and his whole house to, to uh, circumcise. All the men need to be circumcised. And then when Abraham's obedient, he changes his name. No longer are you Abraham. I'm going, I'm Abram, I'm going to call you Abram. And no longer is Sarai. Sarai is going to be Sarah. I will bless her and make her the mother of nations. The king of peoples are going to come from her. So th- when these name changes happen, they're very important in salvation history. Uh, we see another one with Jacob. Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God. He, he's uh, he's um, very upset. He wants to apologize to Esau. He doesn't know he's wrestling all night with God. He wrestles with this angel. And uh, at the end of that, when he decides to, to go to Esau and repent and humble himself, God 
changes his name to Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jacob is, it means deceiver, and Israel means one who wrestles with God. And so uh, this is an important change, important, an important shift in, in Jacob's ministry. And then uh, we know Paul. One is, of the big ones. He's another big one in yeah. the New Testament that gets a name change on the road to Damascus. Is Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul's thinking, I'm not persecuting you. And, and when you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus Christ himself because he is one with the church and the mystical body. And so after Paul has this wonderful, dramatic conversion, he knows Jesus Christ is real and Jesus Christ is Lord. Then later in Acts 13, 9, we see him being called, instead of Saul, his new name is Paul. And he will go on to be one of the biggest evangelizers um, in the face of history. And he will be the apostle to the Gentiles, bringing many, many uh, Christians into the Catholic faith. So those name changes are big. And and so John purposely gives us Peter's name change in chapter one, in the office of the primacy of, of our pontiff, the Pope. Amazing. All right. Yeah. Name changes. Big, yeah. big, big, big. Yeah. And that uh, really aids our understanding that uh, Jesus is the Messiah or the King here. Yeah. Very good. All right. Let's move to verse uh, 43. Okay. Shall we? Yes. All right. The next day, the next day, that is, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Mm, Okay, so now, let's see, we've got uh, a few more here. And Philip immediately has to go tell someone, and he goes and tells Nathanael, now, he says, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the one the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth? What? Wait a minute. Uh, who's this one Moses wrote about? Well, that's in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, when Moses told the people, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I'm going to put my words in his mouth and he will speak all that I commanded him. So Moses is saying, I'm not the one. There's someone coming way better than, way bigger, way better than me. There's a Messiah coming, and he's going to come from among your own countrymen. And so they're expecting a greater prophet, but who is it? And and they, Philip says, we found him, we found him. He's Jesus in Nazareth. And then and then, uh, how does Nathaniel respond to that? Yeah, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind that's of a diss a, almost. Yeah, that's yeah. a diss on Nazareth. Sorry, all you Nazareans out there there if you're listening in Nazareth this morning. Um, but uh, Philip says, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael approaching. He said, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Mm-hmm. Now, how does Jesus know that? He sees Nathanael. He says, here's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. There is absolutely no guile in Nathanael. And Jesus knows that because Jesus is God and Jesus sees the hearts of people. And as Nathanael approaches, he knows that Nathanael is a true Israelite. He loves his faith. He loves his Jewish faith. You know, um, Jacob, Jacob means deceiver. Jacob was a man of duplicity. And uh, Jacob was a man of guile. And Jacob was a schemer, but not Nathanael. Here is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile, no deceit, no duplicity. And Jesus likes this guy. Mm-hmm. And and uh, what does Nathaniel say to him there? Yeah, how do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Let's stop there for All one right. minute just because fig tree makes me go bing, bing, bing. Yep, big, big uh, symbol. Well, fig tree, fig trees were a place where um, a rabbi would go. A beautiful place to study scripture was under the fig tree. Um, sitting at the feet of a rabbi under 
a fig tree because there was shade in the hot Mediterranean sun and there was also sweet fruit up above. You might uh, pick a fig as, as you're, you're studying there. So under a fig tree became an idiom for one who likes to sit in the shade of a rabbi's teaching and enjoy the sweet fruit of his instruction as wisdom. So there, there uh, is where Jesus saw Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree. And then what does he say? All right. Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Uh, Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, this is like, what? Wow. I mean, come on, how, how does Nathaniel know how does he know just from that interaction? I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And then he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What is, there's way, way, way more going on there because he wouldn't know that from just that. And so let's kind of dissect that a little bit going back. Right. Uh, first of all, to be a rabbi, you had to have five disciples under you. And that's exactly with the uh, addition here of Nathaniel. We get, he's the fifth one to join this little posse. And uh, Nathaniel, um, some of the other gospel writers call him Bartholomew. And uh, he was the apostle eventually that gets skinned alive for Jesus. His skin is pulled off and we saw we see a lot of artwork of him in Rome because it's a very graphic way to be martyred. Mm -hmm. uh, so we know that this is a true Israelite where, who has no guile. But um, why is Jesus talking? He's saying, I saw you under the fig tree. And, and all of a sudden, he knows, he knows. Well, this was around Passover time. And what they would have been reading in the Jewish lectionary at that time would have been Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. And so he, you can just imagine Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree probably reading Zechariah. And uh, let me tell you something it says in Zechariah 3. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. And in that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. And uh, the Lord says in, in, in verse 9, the Lord Almighty says, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So God is talking about, in this prophecy in Zechariah, God is talking um, about a servant that's coming that's called the branch. And this branch is going to remove their sin in a single day. Now, who could remove all the sin of the land in a single day? How would that possibly be, be possible? Mm -hmm. The other reference to branch is in Isaiah 11. Uh, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from the root a branch will bear fruit. In that day, God's going to raise up a branch. He had been telling him, and this is this branch, uh, uh, beautiful, beautiful branch imagery. And the reason that is curious, if we look at Isaiah 11, for 600 years, they hadn't heard anything. Um, they had been cut off. They had been taken into exile in Babylon, in, in the, the Babylonian exile, and and they were dead. Their nation was dead. It was had been cut off. It's a stump, and uh, Jesse is David, King David's father. It's a dead stump. 
nothing's coming forth from it. But 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 then Isaiah prophesies that a shoot's going to come up out of this stump of Jesse, and a root, a branch, is going to bear fruit. And so this gave the people hope. Who is this branch? Who is this righteous branch? And then also Jeremiah 23 talks about a branch. And he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign justly. Okay, so there's all this branch imagery going on. And Nathaniel's saying, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, what's Nazareth have to do with it? Nazareth in Hebrew is called Nestor, and that means branch. Nazareth is branch town. Mm. So someone, a branch, is coming. And where is he from? Nazareth. And what's that mean? Branch town? Oh, and he's reading Zechariah under a fig tree, and he's reading Jeremiah, and he's reading Isaiah. And all of a sudden, he puts all these clues together, and he says, oh my gosh, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. It just, it just, you know, here he is standing in front of the living God, first of all, and mm-hmm. the spirit of the living God is, I mean, Jesus Christ is, is right in front of him, and it all makes sense. And he declares, you are the living God. So we get, you know, you wouldn't get that by just reading it, but when you dissect all the the things branch means uh, you can see that hey maybe something good co- good co- could come from Nazareth could come from branch town mm-hmm. yeah like you were saying uh, in that uh, Babylonian time it really looked like the kingdom was over I mean yeah. they were done put a fork in it and uh, yeah. I mean, people at that point in time had to be thinking wow you know what's going on here? we're history yeah we're toast yeah yeah yeah, but now comes this branch, this promised branch, this stump. Out of the stump, a green shoot has sprouted. Uh, the other thing there, let's look at uh, the next verses there, Bruce. Um, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. And he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now right away, that would make them perk up and think something. There is a scripture in the Old Testament where a staircase opens a ladder and and, uh, angels do ascend and descend. And um, it would have brought him right back to, this was a dream that Jacob had in Genesis 28. Uh, Genesis, uh, he's lying there at Bethel, and uh, he has this dream uh, that, and he sees the heavens open, and he sees uh, that the Son of Man will, will descend and ascend. And uh, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's descending down. The Father has sent him down from heaven. And we know after his resurrection, he will ascend back up to the Father. And so there is, uh, there is and Jacob has, uh, has this dream at Bethel, which in Hebrew means house of God. And Jesus Christ is standing before him, and he is the new house of God because he calls himself a new temple. He's a new tabernacle. He's pitched his tent and tabernacled among them. And now... Uh, there, there's this, this uh, remin- uh, he's referring back to this dream that Jacob had about this ladder where the Son of God would come down and ascend back up, revealing himself to, to, to Israel. Uh, and Nathaniel is recalling this, I'm sure, as Jesus says, says this, and it just confirms in his mind that this truly, this branch, this is God. So um, also, um, Jesus uh, later in John will tell them he is the temple and he is the gate. So you remember when Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And also one of his I am statements is, I am the gate. So coming down from the house of God, 
uh, from heaven coming down to earth to be with us. And he will go back up. He will ascend back up. But he has quite a job to do here in the meantime. And these 12 guys, these first five that he's called, are going to help him tremendously. Well, Sharon, we've got uh, just a few minutes to go here. And I know there was a couple of other little quick points you wanted to make here well, as well. Well, I just, I just think, you know, this whole chapter, this what we talked about today was, was being called. And here, these first five apostles are called. Peter is renamed. Um, but I just want people to know that, you know, we're called too. And you're never too old or too young to be called. I mean, we see Abram, when Abram was called from, from his country, his homeland, his people, his father's household, and it's in Genesis 12, and God calls him. You know how old he is? He's 75 years old, mm-hmm. and he's called out of Haran. And you're never too young. I mean, Hannah is another Old Testament. Uh, she prayed and prayed. She had a barren womb, and she prayed and prayed and prayed for a baby. And uh, when she's given a child, Uh, She dedicates Samuel at age three to service of the Lord in the temple. And then Samuel is called and it's three times and and, uh, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to to Eli. Here I am. You called me. I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Mm -hmm. Remember that story? And he comes a second time and he comes a third time. And and then Samuel, he realizes it's the Lord calling him. And he says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So I'm just thinking, you know, all of us have a calling on our life. Sometime, you know, we just have to be still and listen and listen to the Lord and hear our call. Uh, Micah 6 tells us, what does the Lord require of you? And and it's to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We're all called to that. And we're all called to go spread the gospel. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says, there go for make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. He's calling all of us. We are a... Uh, Back in the day, they were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and they were to speak the words to the Israelites, but we're to do the same thing. Our church, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart by God. So we have uh, we have the responsibility to tell others about the darkness that we've been called out of and into the wonderful light of Christ. And uh, so we're not off the hook, Bruce. You have a calling, <laughs> you know? Yep. You, you have a calling. I have a calling. Everyone has a calling. And, and uh, the main thing is that we love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. And in the New Testament, Jesus Christ adds, in all your mind, don't separate your faith and reason. Study God's word. He has revealed himself to us. His word is powerful. It will not go out void. And next week in John 2, when, or I guess it's two weeks from now when we come back, we're going to be talking about Mary's chapter. And she says, do whatever he tells you. And if we did that, we would all be doing our call. Oh, that's one of the great utterances in Scripture. Uh, That's one of my favorite lines. Do whatever he tells you. Yeah. Well, Sharon, thanks so much. Gosh, we appreciate it. Time just flies. Well, thank you, Bruce. (laughs) It was fun. We got through chapter one. Yay! Yay! Way to go. Yay! Advent blessings to you, Miss Sharon. We appreciate it. Thanks Thanks so much. Thanks, Bruce.